1: Shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America.
2: I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening
0: to Stop the Killing. Hi listeners, if you've been listening to the most recent episodes of Stop the Killing, you'll know that season two finished with the episode on the Christchurch Mosque Massacre, a story from my old stomping ground of New Zealand. And while Catherine and I chug away pulling together interviews with more inspirational, and I mean truly inspirational, survivors, experts and victims' families for season three, we didn't want to leave you with an STK-shaped hole in your podcast listening. So we've pulled together listener questions and previous interviews Catherine has done on other podcasts. And this week, we're sharing a recording from an interview Catherine did on episode 441 of Newt's World, hosted by Newt Gingrich, who is an American politician and former Speaker of the US House of Representatives. So with that, on with the episode. On this episode of Newt's
3: World, after the recent mass shootings, in the last several weeks in Buffalo, New York, Uvalde, Texas, and Highland Park, Illinois. The country has been struggling with how to put a stop to these mass shootings. There are debates on both sides about gun legislation, mental health support, and other resources the government can provide to help law enforcement prevent these terrible attacks. But in order to really make a difference, we need to understand who these mass shooters are, what kind of profile they have, and when and why they decide to act. And I wanted to have someone on the podcast who was an expert in understanding the mass shooter profile. So I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Catherine Schweit. She is an author, attorney, former Chicago prosecutor, career Federal Bureau of Investigation special agent. While at the FBI, she wrote the seminal research entitled, A Study of 160 Active Shooter Incidents in the United States, 2000 to 2013. Her recent book, Stop the Killing, How to End the Mass Shooting Crisis, was released last year. Kate, welcome, and thank you for joining me on Newt's World.
2: Oh, I'm so excited to be here, and even though it's such a sad topic, I love the opportunity to share what I've learned through the years and hopefully to just make a difference.
3: You know, I thought we might start with a stunning story from the weekend mall shooting in Greenwood, Indiana, where three people died, two were injured by a 20-year-old gunman, before a legally armed bystander shot the gunman within two minutes after the gunman had fired 24 rounds. Police Chief Jim Ison said Monday, many more people would have died last night if not for a responsible armed citizen. I mean, it's kind of an incredible story. From your experience, how many times is an active shooter neutralized by a member of the public?
2: It's welcome when it happens, but it's very rare for a couple of reasons. In the last 20 years, out of maybe 300-plus shootings, there's probably been about a dozen, I would say. Maybe more if you count an armed security guard who's trained, of course. But a straight civilian on the street happens to have a gun with them. Very unusual. Very unusual.
3: You know, you were promoted to the FBI executive ranks in 2012 after 20 children were killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut. And you joined a violence prevention team as part of the White House National Security Council effort. When you were involved in all that, you were part of a crisis team that responded to incidents, including the shootings at the Holocaust Memorial Museum, the Pentagon, and the Navy Yard in the Washington area. I'm curious, when you authored the FBI's seminal research study of 160 active shooter incidents in the United States, 2000 to 2013, what was that like to compile that many horror stories.
2: You know, the reason that I decided that our team needed to do that is because I was the only law enforcement person on the White House team. And after Sandy Hook, people were so angry. And if you want to know how angry they were, just think about what happened after Uvalde and how people feel about Uvalde in Texas. So I felt like it was incumbent upon us to start pulling those numbers together and to say, how many of these shootings really happen? And Everybody was saying to us, maybe the media is just making a big deal out of it because this was kids. And I just was like, well, I don't really know. So I guess we have to pull the reports together. So we asked all the law enforcement agencies in the country. We looked at every sort of research database on this, and we came through with a methodology where we could pick out these shootings that occurred in public places where the public was at risk because that's really what we're talking about. An active shooter is an individual actively engaged in killing or attempting to kill people in a crowded area. So when we started, I just didn't really know what kind of numbers we would find. First of all, it was horrible to read police reports about shootings. And so many times people just talk about numbers. When you see it on the news, they say, oh, you know, 13 here, two here, eight here. Every one of those is a person. Every one of those people who's dead has a family. And that's something that really impacts me. My younger daughter is a middle school teacher. So when we were doing the numbers, there were some things that just shocked me. For instance, we studied 14 years. We found 160 incidents in the first 14 years. And we looked from Columbine forward. In the first seven years of the study, we found six shooting incidents a year. On average, six. So I was like, okay, so that's like one every other month. But by the time that we compiled the data for the second half of the study in the seven years at the end of the study, we were averaging 16 incidents a year. So we've gone from six in the first part to 16. And I mean, that showed a huge increase that we were going on a trend north. And I knew that 10 years ago, 10 years ago, I could tell you we were going to be where we are today because here's where we are today. A couple of weeks ago, the FBI released their numbers from last year using the same methodology, and they found that there were 61 incidents last year, 61 compared to six. So a tenfold increase, right? So we've gone from one or two a year. Now we are steadily at 20. Then it was 30. The year before, it was 40. Last year, it was 61. I can't even imagine where we're going to be by the end of this year. Well,
3: first of all, before I get too deep
2: into this, because it's so stunning,
3: describe just for a minute for the average person, what is an active
2: shooter incident? So, you know, the technical definition is what I said, individual actively engaged in killing or attempting to kill people in a crowded space. But, you know, what we mean by that is the public is at risk. To me, an active shooter is two pieces. We have a shooter, but because the person is engaged in shooting, the public and law enforcement both have opportunities to end the shooting or stop the shooting or save lives. So if you're trained personally as a civilian in run, hide, fight, if you know where to go, what to do, how to hide, that you should first try to run away, if you know that, there's going to be less, a chance that less people will be killed. When I did the initial research, we found that 47% of the incidents where law enforcement had to engage a shooter, a law enforcement officer was killed or injured or both. So almost half of the incidents, law enforcement is literally risking their life to engage a shooter. That told us law enforcement needs to be better trained. That number was probably the most surprising number that I found.
3: The increase in the percentage is so breathtaking. Do you have a theory for why that's happening?
2: I think that there's certainly not just a single answer, right? But there are answers and there are some pieces to that. I think we're going to see a trend a little bit down in age and in terms of the average age right now of an active shooter is 35, which is because most active shootings actually happen in places of business. Schools are only like 20% of the shootings. But I think as we get through the numbers, maybe over the last few years, we may see those numbers trend down a little bit, not substantially, but down somewhat. I think what we're seeing now is a trend, particularly with these younger shooters, they're inspired not by someone who's a radical group online necessarily, but they're in online chat boards and they're reading things in other countries, And, you know, both the United States and the UK have traditionally had their vexing problem of the neo-Nazi white supremacist group. And we're seeing like 20% of the domestic terrorist cases in the United States fit into that category. I think Director Ray said that's the biggest chunk of the cases that they deal with is these neo-Nazi white supremacists. And it doesn't matter in some ways kind of what their beliefs are. It matters that they're choosing to act out. And I think that in some cases we're seeing they're getting egged on online. So somebody here in the United States or there in the UK is online and they're getting egged on by others to commit these kinds of acts. And I think when one occurs, then another occurs. Let me suggest one other thing. After the Sandy Hook shooting, researchers really began to take a look at the contagion factor, the idea that somebody would shoot because they saw another shooting. The reason they decided to do that is because we know that there is a contagion factor to suicide. If a child commits suicide in high school, there's likely to be more suicides in that high school shortly after that. And the same thing, suicides in your neighborhood, there's likely to be more suicides in your neighborhood or your town. When the comedic actor Robin Williams committed suicide, the CDC said there was a 10% increase in suicides that same year. So suicide is contagious right? And we wondered whether mass shootings were contagious. And the researchers began to look into that. And they found that, in fact, where there was more coverage, there were more shootings. Well, now we cover mass shootings every day. Back then, the contagion factor, you know, a few years ago, in the seven days after the shooting, there's going to be three more shootings. And then that would stop then there'd be another month or two go by and then there'd be another shooting and then there'd be another three or four shootings right after that. Well, we're in a permanent cycle now where there's a shooting every week. So if there's 61 shootings in last year's tally and there's only 52 weeks in a year, there is no opportunity to not have a constant contagion factor. So I think that's another thing.
0: Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital, or maybe you just lost it? Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look, but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game, or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything, from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to Stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit Stubforge.com and start making tickets today.
3: Is there any think tank or organization that starts from your perspective and looks at the totality of shootings and then tries to come down to analysis. Because it seems to me, given just what you've said today, that not just active shooters, but suicides, et cetera, we almost need a blank slate and a totally new approach to rethinking this stuff, because we're trapped into a series of analyses that just aren't accurate.
2: That's interesting for me to hear you say that, because I wonder... What do you think is inaccurate that's out there? What is pervasive that is a message that we should work on getting rid of?
3: Well, I mean, for example, the contagion theory, I'll bet you almost nobody understands it. The death by suicide, the fact that if you're going to measure gun violence, the largest part of it is actually self-applied. There's just a whole series of things you're describing. I mean, the scale of increase is so sobering that it really raises questions about it's not mental health in the classic sense. It is a breakdown of societal cohesion in a way which almost represents Dostoevsky and the rebellion against the czar in the 1880s and 1890s, where people are so alienated that they seek to live out their alienation in ways that are stunningly violent. I don't know if that makes any sense at all. And maybe this is all obvious, and, you know, everybody at the FBI gets it. But It's almost like I'd like to see a wall that showed all the different factoids that one should understand before you begin to think about an analysis, which is before you begin to have a conversation.
2: Yeah, that's funny you say that because that's been my frustration over the years. I mean, you know what this is like. You get invited to lecture someplace, you go and you lecture, and then after you finish, People keep asking you questions and there's 50 people standing in front of you. You can't get off the stage because they want to ask you more questions. And they say, we didn't know any of this. And, you know, I was giving that kind of speech to law enforcement back when I was in the FBI. And that's why I wrote the book. And you know what? For civilians, I do a podcast now by the same name, Stop the Killing. I do a podcast now because I feel like people keep asking me the same questions. And it gives us that opportunity to discuss all those numbers and these kinds of factors, the FBI has been working on this for more than 10 years specifically. And we issue a report, who looks at that? But a lot of times government agencies look at things, Secret Service has been working on threat assessment and trying to target people who are gonna commit violence for years. That was their whole concept, was who's gonna target our principles that we have to protect. So that idea that we need to get this message out there I feel like I've been saying that for 10 years. I did it in the FBI, and then I wrote a book, and now I'm doing a podcast. And so I do think that there's kind of a hole out there for what understanding the entire picture. No one from Congress is calling me and saying, hey, explain this to me. But they're making legislative decisions. You know, no school board is calling me. But you know who is calling me? My corporate clients, they get it. And they want to keep their employees safe. They want to protect their people. They don't want to have lawsuits filed against them. So they're working diligently to try to resolve these mass shootings that we sometimes don't see them coming because we don't understand the shooters enough, which is really the biggest part. I don't think that people understand how to find the shooters and how to prevent them from shooting. Both the U.S. Secret Service and FBI behavioral people specifically say, it's not a profile. Because profile means like a bunch of boxes to check, where people only look for that. Is the word you would use pattern? Yes. Sure. Who are we looking for? Because
3: of course, those of us
2: who've read various novels
3: about the behavioral right. parts of the FBI, we all have this imagery. The profilers. Sure. To get a better grip of this whole active shooter idea, let me start by asking you to distinguish from an FBI perspective or a Secret Service perspective, between a profile and a pattern,
2: and why the two are really very different technically. That's a great place to start when we talk about the shooters, because I think that when you hear a collective shudder from our behavioral experts down at Quantico, it is when someone uses the word profile. And the reason that they shudder is because profile is a word that kind of eliminates other things. So if I told you that the profile of a shooter is a 35-year-old male living in the suburbs who goes to his business to shoot it up because his wife is divorcing him and he's filed for bankruptcy, those facts could all be true. But then what that means is that people are going to look for 35-year-old white males who live in the suburbs, and they're not going to look for the 20-year-old Or the 60 year old, our age range of the hundreds of shootings I've studied 12 year olds to 88 year olds. 88? Yes. The Holocaust shooter was 88. And he drove to Washington to shoot up the Holocaust Museum people. He killed a guard first. So a profile takes us into looking for a particular type. And that's the one thing we know for sure. There isn't a particular type. The only actual profile demographic that we have is that they're all males. They're male shooters. And I say they're all, but there've been nearly 400 shootings, 15 women maybe. And of those women, sometimes they are there with their spouse or partner. So it's a duo, which we saw like at Walmart and down in Texas, that was a husband-wife couple. So most everything else from a data standpoint, we think of it as a crap shoot. So that's the reason that we need to research it, right? Because we don't have a profile. We're not looking for a person who's been diagnosed as a pathological fill in the blank with this mental health issue. And then we look for those people because they might commit this kind of act. We're looking for behaviors of concern, because anybody could fit into them. And what we know is that 99% are men. But other than that, it could be any other things. So what are the behaviors? And that's patterns of conduct, behaviors of concern. Anybody can fit into that. And that's why it's not a profile.
3: But given the range you're describing, what does that say about the so-called red flag laws?
2: What I'm hearing in that question is that, well, then why have a red flag law if it could be anybody? And I think that's the exact point. I would say anybody can commit a crime. So what are we looking for? A person who is going to commit a mass shooting is on what we would call a pathway to violence. And that pathway is kind of predictable, First, they decide they're going to do it. They get this idea they're going to do this. And why they get that idea is because they have a real or perceived grievance about something in their life, someone in their life, the business they don't like, the wife they don't like, women in general, if they're misogynistic, whatever that is. They don't like a particular ethnic group because they're a hate-filled person in terms of how we think about domestic terrorists, or maybe they have a political belief. A social belief. So whatever that reason is, they have a real or perceived grievance with the world in general or an individual or a business. And then they decide that they're going to act on that. So they get this ideation, I'm going to act on this perceived grievance or real grievance. And then they begin to plan and prepare for these types of acts. Now, when people first started talking about these types of shootings, In the news interviews, they'd stop and talk to his neighbor and they'd say, oh, he's a really nice guy. He kind of kept to himself. He never did anything like that before. And the law enforcement officer would say, I don't know, he must have just snapped. Well, none of these guys snap. None of them. They have an ideation and then they plan and prepare. And here's where the red flag laws could come in. The planning and preparation can go on for hours, but more likely days. In fact, the FBI found that in more than 50% of the cases it went on for days, sometimes months, and even years, these are not things that happen in a couple of days and nobody can see. What happens is people begin to plan and prepare before the attack, and all of those are behaviors of concern, as Secret Service and the FBI would say, behaviors of concern that we can see and we can stop. So Just an example of the latest shooting, which would be the Indianapolis shooter. He shut down his social media sites months ago. They buy their guns. They order ammunition. They change their behaviors in this way. They might stop taking medication that they have been taking. They do preparation for end of life. They give away things. They wipe their laptops. All of that kinds of behavior. Remember, a lot of these people commit suicide. So it's the same behaviors that we might see for suicide. People who are distressed because they filed for bankruptcy, they pull away from people, they stop talking to people, they start missing their jobs, they pull away from their family and friends. All of those behaviors of concern lead up to someone committing a violent act like this. So it's not a profile, but it's behaviors that were visible.
3: So it leads me to two questions. One, in a sense, what you want is an interception, you want to be able to step into that process. How would you know enough to step in?
2: Well, I think on a small scale, the example would be when you're a teenager and they were starting to run with a rough crowd. It's kind of like that. And then you try to divert them. So that's actually what is done. After the Virginia tech shooting, the Virginia legislature passed a law that requires threat assessment teams in every school in Virginia. And those threat assessment teams take that information and they compile it. So if people are aware enough to report behaviors of concern to a threat assessment team, whether it's at a school or whether it's at a place of business, I work with clients to set up threat assessment teams at their place of business, for instance, or at a church, then the threat assessment team can develop a threat management plan to take somebody from overly stressed because they filed for bankruptcy and their wife is divorcing them and they might lose their job. And help find mechanisms to control them, whether that's mental health needs, maybe that's taking their guns away from them for a few months. I mean, not that that's the do-all be-all, but just examples of the kind of things that might help them to get job support to get another job. Maybe they have a child who has some medical issue that's just overwhelming, and they just can't see any solution, and they're going to do a murder-suicide with their child, for instance. If any law enforcement or any threat assessment team gets information about these behaviors of concern about an individual at work, for instance, or school, the threat assessment team can piece together, and this is how we avert attacks. This is how law enforcement and schools avert attacks, which you may seem like that doesn't happen, but they do it all the time. And it's hard to quantify how many attacks are averted. But there's definitely been research to show that we've averted attacks because Threat assessment teams have gathered information. We just had one in San Antonio. A woman reported on a Monday that on Friday, the guy she worked with said he was going to commit a mass shooting. He had made other threats before. She eventually decided she was afraid enough. She reported it to her boss. The boss reported it to the police. The police went to the guy's house and found out from the guy's dad that the guy had just purchased a gun. And the guy was gathering ammunition and he had a hit list and he was going to go out and do this. So they averted attacks because people put the information together. Sometimes law enforcement has to put it together, but sometimes the school threat assessment team can put it together. And Virginia passed this law after Virginia Tech, but I can tell you that Illinois passed the same law after the Northern Illinois shooting up there at that university. Connecticut passed it after Sandy Hook. But we don't have a national policy or certainly any funding to support threat assessment teams. And some of the schools and places have threat assessment teams,
1: And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October
3: 31st. I have to ask you this. Have you looked at the guy in Las Vegas who killed so many people? At the
2: Live Nation shooting? Yeah. I've
3: never understood
2: that. I can tell you that the FBI's behavioral team specifically looked at him and looked at the facts behind that case, and they found that was one of those kind of rarer cases where they found absolutely no explanation for why he did that. It was definitely the most tragic situation that we faced, but we don't have a reason why, despite everybody's look at it.
3: Yeah, well, that's the sense I got is that it occurred it's kind of in isolation. Very much so. It just happened as a tragedy.
2: You know what? Even though that's true about the incident, there were behaviors of concern. That guy took cases, cases of weapons and ammunition into that hotel room, stayed there for a long time, and nobody questioned it. And I can tell you that that hotel and all the hotels in Vegas changed their policies after that about allowing somebody to stay in their room and never checking on it.
3: So if you were to take that example, and for example, the schools that have active intervention programs are there a set of best practices which in a sense ought to consciously permeate the country and become a standard of how to minimize and avoid these kind of disasters
2: i think there are for sure i think you have to have school counselors and principals who are trained to understand what behaviors to look for law enforcement in the communities have to be trained to do that since Columbine and even before, but certainly since Columbine, a lot of law enforcement was trained in how to respond to an active shooter. But until the FBI picked up the mantle after Sandy Hook, there wasn't a national messaging on how civilians should respond, run, hide, fight, and how law enforcement should respond. And that national messaging really helped to permeate the message throughout the United States. And I think we don't have that when it comes to threat assessment teams. So, we have a lot of people out there ringing their bells about threat assessment teams, but not a lot of national messaging on it.
3: From that sample, were you surprised at how badly Uvalde was handled? Oh,
2: yes. It hurts my head. It hurts my head how bad that was. I was not only just surprised at how badly it was handled, I was kind of shocked and disappointed in a personal way because the initial response to that whole type of shooting was, the FBI has to do a better job of supporting law enforcement and giving them the training and making sure. And while I was in the FBI, we trained 330 of our tactical instructors in this type of training. We created train-the-trainer programs so they could work out of our 56 field offices and go to these small towns. You know, most law enforcement departments are 50 or less. They're very small departments. They don't have money for training. They don't have money to travel. And so we trained all these tactical instructors to give free training on the ground in their communities to these local law enforcement officers. And we have given, and I don't say it's free, it's tax dollars, right? But I thought it was well spent tax dollars because we sent the equipment to every field office and we trained tens of thousands of law enforcement officers and the officers at Uvalde. Most all those officers were trained in the exact same methodology. And so after all of these years, to see such groupthink fail was just gut wrenching. It was gut wrenching.
3: Yeah, you know, it's just tragic.
2: Well, all law enforcement. You should be thinking always when you're on the scene about saving the lives of the people who are at risk. You have better training than they do, you have better equipment than they do. They have nothing. The idea that there were kids and adults bleeding out at the end of that hallway and those guys were standing in the hallway fist bumping and cleaning their hands with hand sanitizer made me want to throw up, truthfully. I was so upset. It's
3: astonishing.
2: You know, in the world of law enforcement, it's not easy to do, but it's simple to do. We saw from the film that officers ran right in. There was shooting underway. They should have gone through the door. They backed away. They stopped. They went back to the door. They waited when they were shot at. They should have gone through the door. They should have gone through the walls. They saw where the shooting was coming from because they were shot at. They should have shot back. And they didn't do that. They retreated again down the hallway. So everything they did was wrong from the moment that they stopped at the doorway. Everything was wrong. It was just all wrong.
3: Do you think it's because just their cohesion broke down?
2: You know, law enforcement is trained in incident command, it's trained under the NIM system that everybody uses, that's National Incident Management. They knew what to do. I think that's the heartbreaking part is that those officers, you hear some of it in the chatter and there'll be more released. They knew what to do. It was, I think, a question of not being able to execute it at that moment. And then once they had stopped, I mean, think about it. You're barreling down the highway at 80 miles an hour. And you get off on the off ramp, you can't get back on. And they didn't make that decision at the moment. And then it was easy for them to just say, well, somebody else is going to have to figure this out. And it was, I think a lot of nobody was in charge, even though it's so clear to all of law enforcement that the first person on the scene is the person in charge. That's the rule in law enforcement. You're in charge. You're the incident commander until somebody else takes over. So, all those law enforcement officers that showed up, every one of them should have been responding. And there will be a reckoning. And I think the sad part is that, you know, we see after these kinds of incidents, we also see suicides in law enforcement. And there will probably be suicides there. I hope not. They should all be on Mental Health Watch right now. Their families should be aware of that. Their communities should be aware. It's such a sad response. And there's no excuse for it. They were all trained in it. Those officers were trained in the same training that we gave our tactical officers that our tactical officers gave to the United States law enforcement. So
3: I want to thank you. I'm really impressed with how much this is your life, not just your job, and how much you are dedicated to trying to help America sort its way through this thing. And your book, Stop the Killing, How to End the Mass Shooting Crisis, I think is going to really help change things, not just for members of law enforcement, but I think those who establish public policy need to really understand the way you do in a much more sophisticated way the patterns of what we've been up against and the way those patterns are evolving. I want to thank you for joining me and I hope we have a chance to continue this dialogue in the future.
0: This podcast is a community podcast production that's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to community podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And you'll find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stop the Killing Stories or Twitter at STK Podcast. Come and join the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. All the links are in the show notes. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing.
4: Hello?
1: Hello? It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it because it will happen and it will happen in places you wouldn't expect be ready for it
0: CrimeCon UK, the ultimate true crime event, returns to London on the 21st and 22nd of September 2024. CrimeCon UK is the world's leading true crime event and is partnered by True Crime, the expert-led channel available on your platform of choice. From fascinating sessions with some of the biggest names in true crime to raising a glass with your favourite podcasters, CrimeCon UK is an unforgettable way for you to really immerse yourself into the true crime community. I will be there with my co-host Catherine Schweit from Stop the Killing, so come and join us and don't forget to quote Ferris for your special 10% discount. Head to crimecon.co.uk to book your tickets today and that discount code again, Ferris as in my last name. Ferris like the wheel, Ferris like Beulah, whatever way you choose to remember it, don't forget to put it in and you'll get 10% off.